So Eli and Claire, thank you all for leading in that. Um, I, uh, sorry, I just did something that messed my slideshow up uh, for me teaching. What, what we don't know in the audience congregation is that on some of these videos, they have no lyrics. So you guys have to memorize those as best as you can. And there's times that we just forget stuff. So, so Eli, I forget stuff all the time, man. So I, I want to say, well done. You did excellent, okay? And, and I, I especially want to say this, because you've watched Juliana a couple months ago now. Like, the tracks went out, and Rebecca tried to fake it on the piano, and they just tried to keep going. Those things are going to happen, and you did great. You recovered, okay? So way to go. I'm proud of you. Don't let that be a discouragement to you, okay? Because um, you're, you're blessing the children in here and you're blessing families, and it's good to sing the praises that we need to to God, okay? So thanks, man. Uh, Claire, thank you as well for staying up here and supporting him and doing motions and all that stuff, especially with that cute hat. <laughs> all right, so we're going to be in Ephesians today, and we're continuing with our identity series. Um, and just as a way of segue this morning or introduction, um, this is uh, one, I love Ephesians. It, it's such a powerful book of scripture. There's so much uh, packed in to these six short chapters, um, and it is, when I say powerful, I, I mean it is very authoritative. And one of the things about Ephesians is it deals probably most directly of any of the epistles with the church itself. Okay, now, Obviously, when you get into Timothy and Titus, those two books deal with eldership, uh, the, the uh, structure of the church and leadership, how to multiply the, the leadership and what those requirements are. But Ephesians is one of those that has a really rich, high theology, and the church is constantly uh, hit in here. Now, unfortunately, though, there's a lot of misinterpretation uh, about Ephesians or concerning Ephesians, and especially what we're going to cover this morning. Several years ago, I had a conversation, and it was an ongoing conversation, and probably over a course of three to six months, um, if I remember correctly, it's probably closer to the six months time, but I spent over 20 or 30 hours in conversation with someone, um, and this passage was uh, one of those at the center of that, that conversation, as well as some others, but specifically dealing with the nature of the church and what, what happens with the, the Lordship of Christ, and especially the, the uh, grafting in of the two bodies that we're going to see here in just a minute. And, and so I want to make sure that, unfortunately, the, the, the gentleman I was conversing with, he had a misunderstanding of this passage, his interpretation led him then to misunderstanding how it's applied to the church and relationships. And uh, it, it, it was sad. And I want to make sure, um, when I say sad, I mean, that's, that's well an understatement. Um, and I, I think that, as I was preparing for this morning, um, that memory, that, that encounter, uh, it really made me think through the importance of us as a church understanding our identity right uh, so that as we consider the truths that Paul is communicating, we know what the value of our role in the body of Christ is and what membership is really about. Uh, because if we don't get this right, then, then we have a false foundation upon which we operate, and that false foundation will produce poor fruit in the end. So 
I want us to look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, and I'm going to highlight some key verses. I'm, uh, I'm not going to teach the entire text <clears throat> this morning, but highlight on a couple things. So let's, but, but I want us to get the context, okay? So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so, so there's a people group, the Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, though Paul doesn't say it outrightly there, that group that is the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, is who? The Jews. So we have two groups right at the start of verse 11. Who are they? Gentiles and Jews, okay? And so Paul is saying, how do they relate right in Christ? That, that's, that's the beginning of the context, okay? So he says, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Now, listen carefully to this verse. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, when we look at this uh, passage, there's, as I've identified, Jesus, or Paul is saying that there's two men, or, and he uses these ideas of men metaphorically for the people groups, okay? You have the Gentiles and you have the Jews. And the Gentiles weren't heirs to the promises of the, the Jews or the Israelites. They were missing out on those things. But Paul is saying, time out. There's a change that happens because when Christ came, there is a transformation that occurs. Now, it is clear, and I want, I want to make sure that this is something I communicate very, very clearly. This concept of the one new man in place of the two, that word man is a metaphor for something greater. And that metaphor is for this, the church. Because the, the point is, of all this is that Paul is saying the church is the supreme uh, organization that, that we are grafted into as believers. And that transformation comes because of who we are in Christ. Okay, now here's the important part. If we don't understand that we are a new person, that new one man in Christ, we have missed the point. And this is unfortunately where a lot of people will misinterpret this. They will say, oh, the new man is the old Israel. And we're grafted into the old Israel and we get all the spiritual promises of the old Israel now as Gentiles. That's not what Paul says though, is it? Let's, let's go back and read the text very clearly in verse 15. 
He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, what? In place of the two. The, the gentleman I was having these ongoing conversations with, he was saying, no, we're grafted into the Hebrew nation. And, and that's not the case. What we experience as Gentiles as we come to faith is we are recipients of the promises that are given to Abraham. But those are not the, the national issues. Those are the faith issues, the kingdom that Christ has created in himself because Abraham is a person of what? Faith. It's not just about the, the national uh, upbringing that he had as the father of the Israelites, right? It, it's about him being a person of faith. That's what, especially what we read in, in Hebrews 11, which is known as the faith chapter. And we go through all those historical patriarchs that are saints because of their faith as they looked forward to the cross of Christ and the coming Messiah. So if Paul was saying we were going to be uh, grafted into that nation Israel, wouldn't he have said something like he might enfold the Gentiles into the old man Israel, forming them into that peaceful nation? But that's not what he says. He says that he might create in himself one new man, what? In place of the two. So all of a sudden, Gentile and Jew have been what? Replaced. Do you get that? By the new man. Now that new man is obviously not about one person. That, that's a metaphor that speaks to the church that all of those old nationalities are done away with. And we're one new man in Christ. Okay? So is everybody with me so far? Good. Okay, y'all are looking sleepy this morning. Maybe it's just me. I want to read a quote from you. Um, this, is, this is by Charles Hodge. He's an early Princeton scholar, conservative theologian. Um, Princeton's not so conservative now, but he's, he's old, um, gone, dead. Uh, so he, he was one of the leading uh, people at Princeton. So let me, let me read this. He says, The death of Christ was designed to bring to God the whole number of the redeemed, whether Jews or Gentiles, as one living body, filled with his spirit, as well as washed in Christ's blood. This one body is the church. I think that's just a succinct way of saying that very thing. And, and to, to, to Perry's credit this morning, we've been singing about the blood of Christ and how that has changed us. When he put the worship set together this morning, that's been our focus, that we are redeemed in Christ. And, and, and I especially jumped into my mind as we were singing, Come Thou Fount. Though we were prone to wander, what? He has secured us because of the blood of Christ. We are cleansed. I, I quickly went back behind the screen and, and pulled up the lyrics. Let me, let me do that real quick because I want to get these right. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. See, see, what Christ has done, he took these two wandering nationalities, and when we respond by grace through faith to him, to Jesus and his sacrifice, we are drawn into that one new man. And place of the two they are done away with. And so peace comes. So that, that is the beauty of who we are in Christ. Now, the, the, uh, 
I want us to, to look at, at now what it means for us to be identified with, with this one body, this one church, this, this who we are in Christ. So look at uh, the text in verse 19. It says, uh, Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, I, I want to note a couple things about these words, first of all. If you look, it says, it, these are in the plural, strangers and aliens, okay? But you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you get this idea that there's a plurality of people immediately that are drawn into this body. And this body has, uh, and Paul here uses uh, several word pictures to describe it. So the, the, the use of the term saints, um, when you think about this, it is a, a mindset and an identity that says we are people who worship. Because saints would have been people set apart for a spiritual kingdom that Christ has created, and its membership is that that uh, where ultimately we will be perfected in, equal, in equality with all members. So, so saints, we're, we're fellow citizens with the saints. Now what's, again, really important about that is there's no distinction between the saints. It's not like one saint is any higher than the other. And this is not Catholic terminology here. Okay? So don't, don't think Catholic church and icons and all that kind of stuff. This is the equality of us when we come to Christ being engrafted into the, the body of Christ and we are equal in membership. So, so I want you to think about that for just a moment. Every one of us who is a believer in Christ is equal to another. That's not the way the world operates, is it? The world says, who has priority? Me, myself, and I, right? I get to determine how things are going to be. It's about my privilege, my responsibilities, my perspective, and nobody can tell me any differently. And that's not how the church is to operate. We are to look at one another and say, because we are equal in Christ, we serve one another and we care for one another differently because we're all equal. Now, that doesn't mean that roles... Don't define how those things cooperate together. Roles define the relationships in which we work. That's why we have membership and offices in the church like elders and deacons. Those things define how we are to operate in a healthy way in equality. Okay? And we're going to get into that in some of the future weeks. So now, look at this because I think when we look at this idea of equality, I want to remind us of this passage in Philippians 2. So turn over just a... a one couple, couple pages, one book. Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. So he, Paul again here, and he's with Timothy. He's writing, and he's talking about the humility by which we ought to operate because we're equals. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others, what, more significant than yourselves. So here's Paul's idea. Even though we're equal, what should we have in our attitude towards one another? That, that another is more important. That, that we should humble ourselves with such a careful attitude that we look and say we're going to serve and value others more 
then we will value ourselves. So he's taking the concepts of the world and turned them upside down. And even the equality of membership, he says, it's not about you saying, hey, I'm going to demand my equality. I'm going to serve others because I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit with the gifts that he's empowered me with so that I can serve the body so the body matures. So, so we're starting to see how the identity of who we are in Christ is bringing us together for the care and maturation of one another. All of this is so important. So what does this do? Well, I, I think that, that when we look at this passage back in Ephesians 2, the key here is that membership in Christ produces a familial relationship. So let me, let me make sure I say that word clearly because I know Julianne is going to go, what? Because she's taking notes. Thanks, sweetie. Familial, like family with an I-A-L on the end, okay? So a family relationship because we are put into a new relationship in Christ. It's not just about citizenship of nationality. It's about a kingdom-mindedness by which we operate, the kingdom of Christ. So let's look at these three terms that Paul uses here. I think this is, this is really cool. So if you, if you look at verse 19... He uses um, this, this term, uh, sin, S-Y-N, okay? That Greek form, it's a compound word. He does it three times. And that, that idea is together, that, that bringing together. We, we think about the word synergy, that we come and we work together synergistically. Uh, this, so there's this cooperation. So he first uses it uh, with the word fellow citizens. So we are soon citizens, together citizens. Then he says that we're there, we are joined together uh, in verse 21. He says, in whom the whole structure, being joined together. And then there's a third in verse 22. He says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this concept of togetherness, he repeats. So this idea of us being drawn together is important. Then he uses another picture. And it's interesting because this is a repetition of three words, or the same word three times again in a compound word. And that in the Greek is oikos, which is the word for house. So coming back to this mindset together in that familial, that house mindset. So here's where the, the root words of these are, are um, in oikos. In verse 19, the household of God. And then in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, that Root is oikos again, and is being joined together. And then in verse 22, in that, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. That word is that oikos. So, so now I want you to think through what, what Paul is getting at under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is saying we are members together in a family context, which is, which is like a house. And, and so when you think about this idea of the Old Testament saints, let me talk about those for just a minute. When you think about those who were of faith, like Abraham and Jacob, Joseph, David, all those, those were certainly people who expressed their faith in the Lord Jesus and the coming Messiah. But there were many people who did not profess a faith. We, we, who, who would those have been in the Old Testament? Think with me for just a minute. Saul would have been one. Who else? Esau. We don't know for sure, right? But most likely not. Who else? Cain. I quickly went to the kings in the, the, of Israel that were bad kings. How often were the people themselves rebellious against the Lord? 
So the nation of Israel, yes, there were faithful people, but there was also a group that, that were not faithful to the Lord. And so the nation of Israel was always, in a sense, a mixed nation. There were, there were people that expressed faith, but there were certainly people that did not. Is the church different than that? Th that's a, a poignant question. You might say, well, Matt, yeah, there's mixed people in the church all the time. That there, when we meet, there's probably lost people that don't know Christ in our midst. And I would say, yeah, that's because they're in the building. <laughs> but, but that doesn't, the church is not what? The church is not the building. It's not this space. The church is who? It's us. The believers gather together. And so what we specifically ask for, as, as being Southern Baptists in our doctrine and polity, is that you, to join our church, would have what? A, pre a profession of faith, a testimony about coming to Christ. And so technically, is our church body mixed? The answer is no, we're not. We're distinct from the Old Testament in that sense. So that's one reason I also believe that this picture of, of Ephesians 2 is, not, is us not being grafted into that old national Israel, but we're set apart in a new person in Christ, created as the church that is set apart and is holy, and that's why I think that word saint is so important, that we're fellow citizens with saints, not just with the old, that we're not saints. And then what we're seeing here as well is how are we brought into relationship with one another? It's members of what? the household, the structure being built into a dwelling place. When I started thinking about this idea of home, there were some key concepts that, that I started thinking about. When you go home, what do you feel? What do you feel, hopefully? Like a, a sense of safety, right? A sense of security. When you gather as a family, hopefully, what do you feel? A sense of belonging, a, a sense of hope a sense of security, a, a, um, a sense of rest. How many of you go home at the end of a long day at work and go, I just cannot wait to, to sit on my couch and veg for a minute and not think about all the problems or to lay down. Katie and I got a new mattress a couple years and we just continue to go, this is the best mattress because when we lay down, we feel ready to rest. Have y'all been there, right? Yeah. And, and that's what the home is to be a place of. I looked at Webster's Dictionary. I, I like this. This is my dad's dictionary, so it's older. Um, it says, the, the word home includes concepts of a place where one likes to be. Pretty simple, right? It's congenial. I, I liked that word. That, that it is a place of comfort. Now, let's put this in terms of church life. Isn't that what we should be as we're brought in to who we are as a church, members of the household, fellow citizens with the saints in the household, uh, and members of the household of God, we are being built into a structure, joined together, that grows into a temple. And then we're built together into a dwelling place. You, you see what Paul is saying about the importance of our identity as Christians in the church? We have to be elevating the role and the responsibility and the rights and the privileges of memberships as we are drawn together into the family of God. You, you, you heard that song probably at some point, but that's where this, that concept comes from, is that we are a family of believers, especially as we come together in a local church. So when you think about these, this term, especially this, uh, this one um, that we're being built together into 
a holy temple or were joined together in a holy temple and built together in a dwelling place for God. I want to mention those two just for, uh, for a moment. When you think about a holy temple, what is the significance of a holy temple? It's the place where God was worshiped, right? So, so when we come together, we're coming together to say we are being built into this. We want to be a people together that worship the Lord for, the, for who he is and for the things that he's done. And then also we see in that verse 22 that he's, uh, we recognize that, that we are a dwelling place for God. And I don't think that's necessarily just individually. Because a lot of times I think we look at it that way because the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and seals him. That's what Ephesians 1.13 says. But I think it's also as we come together, we're this dwelling place for God where he wants to be with us. Because it's not about the building. We, we've wrestled with that in, in some of the lines of some songs that we've sung at, at points. It's not about this place. It's about us, the people of God, gathered together. So... When I think about some practical implications, I want to share some, I think, highlights of what the church ought to be. Because as we're talking about our identity, so if if this is who we are as members of this family, members of this body, members of this place where God is to dwell in our midst, what are the, the practical implications? Let me give you a couple, okay? First of all, when we look at the church described biblically, this is a cool thought. It is, it is built of impregnable strength. Does that, that mean make sense? It's built of impregnable strength. Nothing will defeat the church. I don't know about you, but in the midst of all the chaos that we're going through in our world right now, it feels like everything can, can impact us, right? We feel like everything's in chaos, that it, we can't step on sh- sure footing. That is not the case for the church. What we have is impregnable strength. There can be nothing that defeats us. And I don't know about you, but that means that we ought to be encouraged about how we do ministry together as members of the body, as a family together, and who we are in Christ. So there, furthermore, I think this, um, when we think about the church, and I, don't, I especially started remembering back and reflecting on my teen years when I, when I started writing this, this thought, that all of us at some point, I think, have a sense of not belonging to a group in our lives at some point. Some of us may even have it now because I think COVID can, can kind of have all this quarantine and, and social distancing and stuff has made us feel disconnected. And, and so I, c- I could easily rightfully say that at some point all of us have felt that sense of not belonging. But what has Christ done? Christ has remedied that. He has reconciled all of that. Because he's destroyed all of the, the sense of separation, and he's engrafted us into this body that is growing, that it is healthy, that is designed to worship, it's designed to care for one another. And if we get that right, the transformation that can occur both corporately and individually can, can't be matched. That's the church. So when I think about this, the, the follow-up question is, what we often feel will fill that sense of belonging. Unfortunately, I think it's other things. I think we can join clubs. I think we can do other things with, with small groups and other, you know, just a variety of things. We can fill it with stuff. We can fill it with games. It, it, all to fulfill, try to fill 
that sense of belonging that can only be rightly filled in the church. And every one of us, because we're created in the image of God, is wired, designed to have that church relationship. So I was talking to a friend. Um, you, you probably heard me talk about uh, Eric Reed before. Um, he does exist, Gina. Um, so he, he and I were sharing a couple things about what was going on this week and in our, our lives. And, and he just, in, in the course of the conversation, he made a point to me. And I thought, man, I'm just going to reflect on that and study on it. He said there's, there's two key groups that God has created, two, two uh, it, it, social structures, if you will, that are at God's centerfold. And he said the highest of those is the church, and the second highest is the family. And I wrestled with that at first. I was like, why would he put them in those orders? Because I was like, most of the time when we list our priorities, we go God, family, church, right? And, and is that, yeah. But, but here's what I started realizing and why I believe Eric's right, is what will happen with family eventually? Especially if they're not believers. Family will dissolve, won't it? It won't be for eternity. Even though Katie and I have been married almost 28 years, we're cl closing in on it now, sweetie, we will not be concerned about our marriage in heaven. That, that family life will be dissolved in a sense. We'll probably remember that we were married, but that's not going to be the priority. So I think as I thought about the implications of church being that first priority that God created versus family, yes, family is important, but I think the church is the greatest. Why? Because the church will continually be the bride of Christ even when we're in heaven. Right? So, so think about the implications of that just for a minute. We need to make sure that we're relating right now, and this I think goes back to what Steve even pointed at this morning, is out of 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about the emphasis of loving one another well, and that love will endure. It is an eternal aspect to what we ought to be investing in one another's lives right now, not at the expense of our, our families, but for the benefit of our families so that we as a church family operate in the best way possible. It's a, it's a tough implication because I think a lot of times we flip that a little bit and we make a lot of sacrifices for our families, but not for our church family. And it, it needs to be different if we're believers. And I'm not saying set your family aside, but I'm saying your family ought to support what the church is doing because the church is going to endure. So Jesus is central to all of that. How do I prove that? Well, look at what he says, Paul says in verse 20. He says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All of this happens in Christ. It cannot happen apart from Christ. If we don't preach Christ, if we don't pre preach the, uh, and teach the, the message and hope of the gospel, we are failing because Christ is what holds this all together. So we can, and that's why I think all these other social structures that are out there, all the other things that we try to fill our lives with in the world, if it's apart from Christ, it will crumble because Christ is the cornerstone that holds it all together. So um, I want to read something to you now. And this will, I hope, bring a good picture into the, the understanding of the importance of the church body. And this is a pretty lengthy quote. It's by Spurgeon. I think sometimes he, his wordsmithing is just worth it. So 
Um, I'm going to read it kind of slow and let you soak on it, okay? So what he, and I'm going to set the context. What he's talking about is how church members in relationship with the leadership of the church would find their value and come together and be ministering together well. So here's what he says. The ministers, like wise master builders, are there running along the wall, putting each spiritual stone in its place. Each stone is leaning on that massive cornerstone. And every stone, depending on the blood and finding its security and its strength in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, elect and precious. Do you see the building rise as each one of God's chosen is brought in, called by grace and quickened? Do you mark the living stones as in sacred love and holy brotherhood they are knit together? Have you ever entered the building and seen how these stones lean one upon another, bearing each other's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ? Do you mark how the church loveth Christ and how the members love each other? How first the church is joined to the cornerstone and then each stone bound to the next and to the next and to the next till the whole building becometh one. Lo, the structure rises and it is complete and at last it is built. And now open wide your eyes and see what a glorious building this is. The church of God. The most careful will omit something. They'll leave it out. The most clever find in some things he has been mistaken. But mark the church of God. It is built according to rule and compass and square, and it shall be found at last that there has not been one mistake. What a great picture. Not one mistake, built to completion, members working together so that Christ is loved well and we together are loved well. You see the value of who we are, our identity in Christ? Church, how are you doing? If you're in Christ, are you finding fulfillment in this membership? I'm going to be honest, it takes work. It takes commitment. You can't do it flippantly. You're not called to do it cheaply. You're called to respond and be part of this work so that Christ is exalted. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would trust that you hear this truth of the Word of God and you go, I long for that. I, I, I see what Pastor Matt is saying, that there is a, a difference that Christ makes that I have a sense of belonging in Christ, and I'm longing for that because that sounds like what would fulfill me. See, I remember, and you all hear me share my testimony often, but I remember being a teenager longing for security, for safety, for a place to belong, and, and I filled it with wrong things. But it was not until I was convinced and convicted that sin led me astray and that Christ offered me something greater. And I trusted by grace through faith that his work on the cross would redeem me. And I remember being 20 years old and confessing, Jesus, I know that you're my Savior. I need you to, to save me from my sin that has created guilt and shame in me. And I want to belong to you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And a transformation occurred. And I plugged in the church. And Christ, through the church, began to do a great work in me. And I know it's not done. I know it's not done. But it's not done for any of us. But we're called to be members of that church. So if you're here and you, you know that you need to be saved, 
I want to encourage you. Find someone to counsel you about that today. Be a friend, be it Steve, Dan, myself, Greg. There's lots of it. Kevin, there's Frank, Perry. There's so many people. And I'm, I'm Gina, ladies, Debbie uh, Randolph is back there, my wife Katie, Jen, uh, Christy. There's so many ladies. I can name ladies all over this place. Kathy loves students. I mean, I know so many people that could share the hope of Christ today with you so that you would know that you belong to Christ and that you could have this sense of body life in, in the church that would bring everything to fulfillment because that's Christ's purpose for you. See, the purpose is that we would reach maturity in Him. So, I want to ask us to do this. If you're here today and you know that Christ has been speaking to you about your commitment to His bride, would you just respond by telling Him, Lord, I love your church. I love your body and I want to be invested in it. I want to fulfill that call. I want to be part of a body that is moving in its members together to care and to see an impact for the kingdom of Christ. If you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to, to, to pray about that right now and just begin that process of surrendering to Christ. And maybe saying, Lord, my commitment is this. I'm going to find somebody today to talk to. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute. Perry's going to play on the guitar. We're just going to give you a minute to pray and for you to respond to the Holy Spirit and His call on your life right now. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your perfect plan of salvation. It's not just a plan to save a, a sinful person and bring them only into a right relationship with you. Even though that's tremendous, there's further blessings. And that further blessing is that you did engraft us into this body where Christ is the head. It's called the church. And in us, you've taken all the things that were opposed to you, and you're making us new, and you're bringing peace to us. Lord, that, that is so tremendous. Words can't really accurately capture all of the, the weight of that thought. That, that we can have fellowship with the, the perfect triune God. That your spirit makes intercession, that Jesus is our mediator, that, that we have access to you, Heavenly Father. Lord, it, it is so tremendous. And that in the midst of this life while we're being sanctified and changed into the likeness 
of Christ more and more. We get to care for one another's body. Lord, the, the identity of who we are in Christ is, is honestly it's so different from the way of the, that we used to think when we were prior to Christ. It, it's hard to get our minds totally wrapped around it. But Lord, I pray that we would be a body here at the Crow Church that would encourage other Christians and other churches about who we are in Christ. And Lord, that we would minister in such a way to one another as, as those stones laid side by side and upon one another like Spurgeon described, that we would reach a point of being a beautiful dwelling place for you to abide with us when we gather to worship, that you'd be pleased with that worship, that you'd be glorified by that worship. And Lord, we would be mutually edified in that. What a, an amazing concept. Lord, all that happens because of the perfect gift of salvation through Christ. So, Father, I pray that, that we as believers would join together and, and, and we would commit to, to who you've described us to be. Lord, that we'd have a right understanding and we would propel an excellence as members of a, of a local body. And Lord, for anyone here today or maybe on Facebook that, that doesn't know you personally as their Savior, Lord, I pray that your spirit would woo them, that your kindness would lead them to repentance, and they would find the, the wonder of grace to draw them to faith in Christ, that wonderful Savior. So Father, today as we stand here in just a minute, we sing a reprise of... of uh, worship. Be glorified. Let our hearts be lifted up to you, our minds as well, not just our voices alone, so that, that you are glorified and you're pleased with our worship and that it rises before you as, as a beautiful uh, aromatic incense that you're pleased with. So Father, we love you. We thank you again for who we are in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.